There's a child in a pit fighting a bear. It has no weapons. You have a rope ladder. What do you do? I've not come to witness this gladiatorial combat. I'm just sort of a passerby. Happen to have a rope ladder. Let's not go into those questions right now. Let's only answer. <laughs> Let's not think about the past. Let's think about the future, right? So all you can see in front of you is a child fighting a bear. I say fighting a bear. You can see it's about to be released. Okay, and then so the, the, the child's in the middle of the ring. The bear is behind like some sort of grill or a gate. Yeah. Which is being maybe slowly winched Yeah, up. yeah. The bear's real mad. It's got like glistening fire. Maybe like 14 foot walls. Like, there's no way the kid's getting out. Okay. There's also so the bear like can't get out either. Bear can't get out either. You know, I've been given this beautiful world to inhabit with an array of choices, but there's only one valid choice. Yeah. And it is to hoist out this child. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, 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 you the rope ladder down. Yeah, now I'll find out in which way this is a trap created by the <laughs> games master. Uh oh. Looks like the kid was Hitler. Hitler. Oops. <laughs> no, I'm joking. I'm joking. So, okay, so second, second question. Second question. Let's say a, a couple of other people have rope ladders, and you can see them. They're also at the edge of the pit. Do you- okay, so we're we're competing for valor here. What? <laughs> <laughs> do, do you still? Do you still? Oh, okay. Because any of us could help. So why do I have to take time out of my precious uh-huh, day? Uh-huh. You know, it's like that. There was that sociologist who um, covered the story of a murder that happened in the central courtyard of this huge American like social housing project. Right. But like, very few people actually called the police because those who actually witnessed the murder thought this is happening with such high visibility. Yeah. So everyone else will call the police, but actually, the diffuse. It's called diffuse social responsibility. Mm. You actually get less people doing responsible things if they can see other people who are able to take care of it. Yeah. Uh, would I still do it? I do that thing where, like, you know, I, I try to make eye contact with the other rope person. Yeah, Do you know when you're, like, after you kind of thing? Yeah. Do you want to go first? Like, if, if someone else is in a queue and it's not clear who had that space in the queue, you go, yeah. but you do it non-verbally. Yeah, it's all yeah. with eyes and yeah, yeah. a little bit of lips. Yeah. Well, you say non-verbally, yeah. you definitely do make that... Oh. Uh, oh, yeah, 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 that's the, that's like, the verb. That's the verb you're yeah. allowed. My first instinct is save the child, but this second etiquette-based instinct is I don't want to step on their toes yeah, if they're... Because yeah, 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 they yeah. could be like maybe the designated first responder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it could be the they kid's could, dad. This person could be staff. <laughs> you know, am, I, am, am I trained? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, they might have to fill in a form if you do it. Let the trained professionals get yeah. involved. But I would still, you know, I, I'd go to... Like I was clearly visibly, I ostentatiously uh-huh. start getting out my rope ladder yeah. and I'd wait for a member of staff being like you know this is scripted you know this is like wrestling there's no actual danger here don't get involved <laughs> and if that doesn't happen I'd just continue my behaviour yeah okay hyper vigilant for someone there to question what I'm doing what if the kid's like the pit that the kid is in is another country the bear's we're going to need a bigger rope you've got a 
uh, rope holder, a rope ladder holder is a robot <laughs> arm. There's a robot arm and you have a switch. Is it not easier for me just for this gladiatorial ring just to be built on the borderline? Uh, I mean, no, no. It's the other way. It's, <laughs> it's halfway around the world, right? Okay. And you have uh, a lever that would just release the rope. Would you still and am I looking that? through some kind of periscope? What's How am I? You're looking through a monitor. You're watching it on Twitch. <laughs> okay. It's being streamed. And I've got a button which is deploy robot rope extender. Uh-huh. And, but there's, you also know I, the same as question two applies where there's definitely other people who have access to the release rope lever like would you still pull the lever okay so i can't make eye contact with them but like are we in a group chat do we know yeah, each you other can see can they're, in the chat. they're in the chat yeah oh so i'm like who wants this one mate and then winky face or yeah. something or maybe even now this has happened so often there's just a rope ladder remote <laughs> and i just stick the rope ladder remote icon out with a question a couple of question marks and you know i'll wait to see if someone's seen it and if no one actually, if I don't see the little ellipses that mean someone's typing, I'm just whacking mine because they weren't fast enough. You, that's the protocol you asked for. They wasted first. it. They wasted the valor. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Let's, let's take it up a notch. What if the child, instead of being in a pit confronting a ferocious bear, uh, they don't have access to food and medicine. And instead of a rope ladder, you can give money to a charity that will give them food or, and or medicine. So it's like I'm giving a ladder to someone else to unfurl Mm. and I have ladders and maybe that person doesn't have a ladder and they're like I'm actually in a position to unfurl this ladder if only I had a ladder and I'm like well I have a ladder if only somehow we can like work out this scenario in a way that helps everyone (laughs) yeah I'd send the ladder over I think I'd I'd chuck him a lad now that is the classic of my own particular well, flavour. You know, I live right next to a bear pit. Do you, oh, you know I've, that? I've been in that bear pit in Sheffield Botanical Gardens. And, yeah, and you know it had to get shut because children <laughs> fell in the bear pit. Are you basing this hypothetical on the park next to my house? Uh, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> just in my. It head. really helped me get in the mindset. Yeah, I do. Just for the listeners, well, I don't want to dox myself, but I live near a botanical gardens in Sheffield that contains a bear pit. Bear pits are exactly what you think they are. Oh, like they, they'd, ha- they'd house bears in it. And they would bring new animals to the bear pit and they would take bets and just watch for entertainment to see what would win. And it would be like, what, three wolves versus a bear or something like that? Yeah. And they only stopped doing it when children fell in. Yeah. Um, and now <laughs> they've hidden that plaque. They've had to have a plaque explaining this, but the plaque's far away and quite small and not near the actual bear pit. And in the bear pit, they've made a bronze, cuddly, friendly bear yeah, for the children bear looks to, to pose with. Yeah. <laughs> it's so good. Because I knew, I knew the pit long before I knew the history, and it really changes your whole relationship with that little uh, artifact once you know what, what actually happened yeah. there. The grizzly, well, this is the thing, right? The explanation of what actually happened there because this that Mm. logic of like oh you should be morally compelled to give to charity because there's this horrible situation and it's the thing you should definitely do because altruism is like morally good like most Mm. people when presented with those questions like that would draw the same conclusion i certainly would um but like why is the child in a pit where's this bear come from why do you have a ladder if we start yeah. asking those questions, we start really getting into it. Like, because we're talking you've got to place yourself outside of that savior complex. Well, you, it's the savior thing, but it's also the premise of the situ- the circumstances you find yourself in 
is supposedly natural. And mm. that's what liberal arguments for charity do to capitalism. They assume capitalism is just normal. And then they go, okay, so what do we do? What solution do we do within this system? Like this child needs to be saved from the bear, or we say, you know, something more real like food or medicine or education or whatever. But the thing is that the pit the child is in, the bear pit the child is in, these resources have already been accumulated by capital. Capital has normally undemocratically seized control of these things and capitalism decides who uses these things and how they're used. So on the one hand, capital is why the child is in the pit with the bear and, mm. and capital is the reason that you, Sean Morley, or perhaps a benevolent billionaire has the rope ladder. Mm -hmm. Like, and by avoiding all those explanations and just sort of saying this is natural or this is inevitable, you obscure... I'm not saying this to be like hyper-accelerationist and saying, fuck Oxfam, we should abandon all charity as some sort of hyper-accelerationist. The more people who die, the closer we get to communism. I'm not saying that, but I'm just pointing out the uh, deceit within the seemingly logical charity argument for altruism. Yeah, I think not fuck Oxfam, but like there's loads of live aid or where did, wasn't there a big scandal about where that money actually went to and loads of it kind of didn't get accounted for and went to a lot of the times when um, people are trying to create relief mm. foreign relief funds for countries that are especially experiencing political crises they just see a crisis and then they just send money but they don't have an analysis or like they don't have enough people that know the lay of the land in that country to make sure that money gets allocated correctly so it either gets like wrapped up in private companies if some of it gets siphoned off to the government that's causing the problems who then just use it to bolster their own yeah. coffers it's like they're paying the bear sometimes yeah yeah it's, <laughs> like, the so it's, it's like they go i need to shut this rope ladder down and the bear comes up and they're like something's gone wrong <laughs> why, why is the bear in the bleachers <laughs> no they see the child in the pit and then the bear is in their hands and for some reason next and they know they find themselves throwing the bear in um yeah there's kind of two layers to it there's layer one which is corruption and then there's layer two of even if this wasn't corrupt and was functioning perfectly, it would remain problematic. Take your example of uh, like foreign aid. <laughs> even when not corrupt, you know, it can be functioning perfectly legally by the laws that the capitalists have written, like boomerang aid. So boomerang aid is where a government gives aid to a developing country, or countries that they call underdeveloped, which are actually uh, overexploited, right? But they, mm -hmm. they give money to a, a country. Let's use the example of Afghanistan. So the Afghanistan war, after Britain and America invaded Afghanistan, what we then did was do things like, oh, we, we're going to build a hospital or a road or whatever, some sort of useful thing. And you'd be like, oh, that'll be good. It'd be good to have a road or a hospital considering we blew up mm -hmm. all the roads and hospitals that were there before, right? Um, mm -hmm. Send the money over, but you ensure that the money, which is coming from either the state or charities, the money just comes back to Britain because you ensure that British contractors build the road or British contractors build the hospital. And then mm. it turns out that the hospital was never finished or that the road was made of spikes. It just turns yeah. out. So that's the corrupt version of it. But then even if you did successfully, you know, even if there was a road or there was a hospital and it's functioning in a supposedly uncorrupt way, it's still serving imperialism, right? Uh, or yeah. You're sending the money over there, but then you're also sending out someone to catch it. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. And then, or, or individual institutions, like I think the British Heart Foundation is, I think it might be the biggest charity in the UK. 
25% of their money is spent on actual charitable activities. Basically, the, a lot of their money is overheads. A lot of people's labor, so all the people who work for the British Heart Foundation, either delivering the aid or working in marketing or working to network with businesses to try and get them to give some money to the British Heart Foundation. Mm -hmm. All this labor in this supposedly efficient system is being wasted because yeah. we, we don't have an economy based on need people's labor has to be devoted to basically like organized begging and the begging goes out towards the public as well like yeah it's the same thing with all forms of social responsibility like yeah. climate climate change comes down to me turning the light off not when i'm walking through a city center and every business and building that is not currently <laughs> being used is illuminated like a christmas tree <laughs> or it comes down to um, mental health prevention falls on to the friends of ill people to have one conversation with them a year which will stop them taking their own life <laughs> It doesn't come at all down to like funding health facilities that cannot see the patients to the level of need that there is. The most commonplace presence of charities is that every street you walk down, you will see like homeless people who need it to live right now. Yeah. And then someone representing an a, like a organization that can be anywhere between like cancer to a donkey sanctuary. Yeah. Like I don't think we need things like the trolley problem yeah. because literally walking down the high street with only a little bit of money in your pocket presents the most complicated gray areas of morality about what the most deserving area of need is within our own social society, within yeah. the world, or whether just to give it to this guy and you don't know if he's going to survive the winter. Yeah, you don't need the child in the pit with the bear because the, the guy outside the Tesco's is sat there. Yeah, right. And then you've got like philanthropy, which is basically mm. laundering the reputations of the rich. But it doesn't, mm -hmm. it, so it, it, it launders the reputations of the rich, but it also enables them to pursue their ideology, right? They're billionaires, so they love capitalism. So their solutions to things are always, let's do more capitalism. So that's where, you know, like the Gates Foundation, which is Bill Gates's um, oh, and they love doing that. I've seen so many bootlickers for Gates just because he sticks like, yeah, he has a massive number attached to what he's giving out, but it's nothing to him. It is less to him than us putting like a £20 note into every chugger's bucket. Even ignore the amount. How did he get that money? By ruthless mm. monopolization and the exploitation of surplus labor of thousands and thousands of people. He has no democratic right to control that money. There is no oversight of Bill Gates's money. He, as an individual, just has these billions of pounds that he's accumulated and exploited from other people's labor. And that gives him the right to choose how to spend it and to choose. Like, this guy's got so much money that even his philanthropic activities will determine how the agriculture in a whole economy will develop. Mm. This guy's worked with Monsanto. Monsanto, mm. the people who came up with the Terminator crop, which is, uh, you, do you know about this? Go on. Straight away, it sounds bad because you're thinking Terminator crop. Sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> so they've copyrighted certain seeds, basically. So if you grow a crop and you use Monsanto's stuff, the plants themselves will basically not yield seeds to grow again. You have to return to Monsanto next season and buy more crops from them. So they've genetically mm -hmm. modified plants which naturally reproduce themselves. Just die forever. Yeah, yeah, to die unless you... So they've, they've turned a thing that would or, was already turned into a commodity and made it into even more of a commodity. <laughs> they've turned the earth and the soil into a subscription model. Yeah, yeah. And like... <laughs> That's horrible. Yeah, but Ga the Gates Foundation like kind of works with them and stuff. They've worked with like MasterCard. MasterCard helped them expand in Nairobi and they gave them like an $11 oh million dollar contract. 
So, like, who's who's that to benefit? And do you know what? The, Bill Gates like waded into what ought to be done about COVID <sighs> and got loads of news coverage about it. He knows mm-hmm. as much about epidemiology as any random person you could pick off the street. He's only his richness has given his opinion on this more merit than anyone else's, and he is being given the coverage as though he was like a political figure or, or, or a scientist. I mean, I should sort of remind people, this guy designed windows. What's this guy, <laughs> what's this guy to do with epidemiology? Yeah. I mean, there's that great, um, there's like a Naomi Klein quote. Philanthropy means people look to the billionaire class to solve problems because collective action and a strong public sector just disappeared. Yeah. There's this underlying notion of billionaires are like a, a smarter class of people because they earned their billions mm. you know you'd have to live a thousand lifetimes to get even one billion you can only get a billion by extracting surplus labor from thousands of other human beings individuals yeah. shouldn't have the right to make just completely unaccountable decisions like this yeah it's laundering their image it is also pursuing their ideology yeah and it fits into the ideology of capital yeah. that you know, charity and not taxation is the principal form of how, you know, capitalism like extracts holes out of everything, which can be like we've extracted from our own working class Mm. that they have all these health problems. Well, let's now all donate five pounds to the NHS. Or we have capitalism that's part of a military industrial complex. So we have destabilized a government somewhere halfway across the world. And that's caused a humanitarian aid crisis. Let's do Red Nose Day. (laughs) (laughs) Which then ends up in, remember when Red Nose invested in arms companies? Right. Well, this is what I was talking about before, right? We've got so focused on charity and charity is the focus that we do this big song and dance. And then like we get some of our celebrities to do like very guest mini live sketches, which aren't aren't very good. (laughs) Red Nose Day isn't very good but we create this massive bundle of money and it's clear no one knows where that money goes now it's only important that it leaves the studio Red Nose Day has got this imperialism built into it because the people on the other side are just emaciated victims there is no attempt to educate it is just it is trying to turn the whole of the world's problems into a two hour version of a child called it (laughs) The whole clapping for the NHS, raise money for NHS charities thing, is like a combination of two things I already hate, which is, number one, poppy fascism. Like, mm. all November, where's yeah. your poppy, mate? My poppy's yeah, four yeah, foot yeah. wide and it's on my Range Rover and my head. And paying people in exposure. Oh, yeah, it's... Yeah. You have combined poppy fascism with paying people with exposure. Like, Did you see the footage from Westminster Bridge? Have you seen that clip? Yeah, of all the people not socially isolating and for some reason the cops aren't kicking off at them. And then a, a big boat doing wheelie, uh, a big boat doing donuts. <laughs> I'd love to see a boat doing a wheelie. <laughs> yeah, that would be pretty much, uh, for the NHS, yeah. of course. The thing is, when you bring it back to the NHS, you realise the very thing you're railing against, which is sending aid to people when you're causing the problem, mm. that is actually better than the scenario we're in, mm. where we're watching the child being mauled by the bear, but everyone in the bleachers is just watching their watch, just waiting down until they're allowed to clap. <laughs> <laughs> we respect the child. <laughs> that child is an angel, one of our heroes. Yeah. Glad it's not me down there. Smashing the fuck out of a pan while a yeah. child's head gets removed by a grizzly. <laughs> 
Yeah, and one person at the side going, couldn't we like arm the child, give the child some sort of arm or some sort of personal protective equipment? People go, well, now's not the time. Can we t- can we talk about this after the child's been mauled to <laughs> A 99-year-old man doing laps of the bear pit very quietly yeah. as people throw coins into his bucket that we then tip onto the corpse of the headless child. Yeah. Finally, after the man finishes one his 100th lap, we allow him to enter the arena for his final goodnight. <laughs> The bear must be sated. (laughs) We hate that it kills the child, but ultimately we're not going to scrap the bear. (laughs) Nostalgia for Claire Matley's post-war Labour government is a powerful drug for many on the left. I know I've had a joke. We tend to skip over that government's role in developing the nuclear bomb, setting up NATO, partitioning India, wage freezes, austerity and strike breaking. Because all that is hard to see in the shadow of the houses and schools and welfare state. The greatest achievement of that Labour government was Nye Bevan's NHS, a public service owned and funded by all of us through the state. From the establishment of the NHS in 1948, healthcare was not a privilege in the UK, it was a right. But the NHS wasn't perfect. Bevan's system was built on a white paper written in 1944 by the Tory Henry Willink. Bevan's major contribution was to ensure the NHS would be nationalised. Nationalised. Some may say publicly owned, but if we're being more precise, we mean owned by the state. The state. Doctors initially resisted the NHS and Bevan could only get them on side by, in his words, stuffing their mouths with gold. Ensuring their pay was maintained and allowing the continuation of private provision. Top-down nationalisation also kept the private sector administrators who controlled healthcare institutions before 1948 in positions of power. Bevan was very proud that the NHS was inspired by the Tredegar Medical Aid Society. Before the NHS was established, healthcare varied a lot. The Tredegar Medical Aid Society was just one of many schemes, but it was special. It was based on the principles of mutual aid, mutual aid and working class self-help. Working class self-help. Positions of authority were elected by and accountable to the workers. The system wasn't just comprehensive, it was democratic. Democratic. In the 1800s, the Tredegar Iron and Coal Company sought compulsory deductions from workers' wages to fund a doctor appointed by the company. Not too chuffed with this lack of control, workers organised to create their own system. And by the 1930s, the Tredegar Medical Aid Society, set up by the workers, covered not just the steel workers themselves, but 95% of the local population. And they all had a say in how the scheme functioned. But in 1948, the society became a victim of its own success when Bevan, not just the Minister of Health, but their local MP, launched the NHS. The elected committee at Tredega saw a continued role for their society within the NHS. But they were told by Bevan, You have shown us the way, and by your very efficiency, you have brought about your own cessation. We can clearly see the influence of the Tredega scheme on the NHS. It was comprehensive healthcare, free at the point of use. But it was also under workers' democratic control. The NHS was not. In the new NHS, local communities and the workforce had barely any voice. The state had control. This was a huge missed opportunity for something that's held up as the crowning achievement of British socialism. Like, you gotta remember, socialism doesn't mean free stuff or the state doing things. It means establishing working class control of the means of production, distribution, and exchange. Yeah, some NHS workers had a voice, but they were the administrators and the doctors, the same elites who had dominated the previous system. Nurses, cleaners, caterers, and any other healthcare worker you can think of had very little representation. And I'm not dunking on the 
NHS here. The NHS is absolutely banging and should be fought for tooth and nail. I'm just a little worried. I'm just suggesting that as the national discourse continues to sink into a culture war where the right drool over some return to the values of the 1950s, the left should avoid our own version of this nostalgia. By denying workers a voice in the NHS, entrenching top-down control, and permitting the continuation of resource-leaching private healthcare as working-class mutual aid was swept away, contradictions were built into the NHS from the very beginning which continued to cause problems. It's increasingly common to refer to the NHS as our NHS. Our NHS. This was a phrase the Labour Party used a lot, but now the Tories use it too. As I've pointed out, it isn't ours in the sense of workers and communities having meaningful control of it. If you had a vote on giving Virgin £2 billion of contracts in the NHS, would you have voted in Richard Branson's favour? The very idea that you should have had a say on such a thing probably seems absolutely bonkers. But it wouldn't have seemed that way to the workers of Tradiga. This aspect of the healthcare debate has been completely taken off the table. The debate's all about funding, right? But what if the Tories increased funding and that funding went to private companies who were able to cherry pick the most profitable services in completely unaccountable backroom deals? Oops. Now, when Tories like Matt Hancock say, our NHS, what do they mean? We know they don't mean the workers. Our, for Hancock, means British. They're tying the NHS to nationalism. Our means British citizens. And this is some real dangerous stuff. The NHS is ours, not theirs. And this is where we come to the link between clapping and poppy fascism. World War I was an international mass murder of the working class brought about by competing capitalist imperialist ruling classes. Taking a minute science to remember that crime, to remember those who died not for some noble cause, but because they were thrown into a meat grinder by a self-serving ruling class, seems like a good idea, you know, if we're trying to avoid it happening again. But then you look at the service at the Cenotaph, at politicians who continue to launch wars that kill thousands of people, and you think, hmm, maybe this is something else. Maybe this is performing some other function. When your most bloodthirsty uncle, a man that would demand we nuke Finland if the sun declared them our enemy, is posting LEST WE FORGET in all caps every day, maybe remembrance is not about remembering the reality of the horrors of war. Isn't it funny that the people most enthusiastic about this remembrance don't think NEVER AGAIN. They tend to be thinking AGAIN. Yeah, please again, let's do this again. The size of your poppy, the clarity with which you sing God save the Queen, your policing of others who aren't remembering as hard as you. These are all a performance that separates you from any consequences of the war machine you support. True anti-war activists are traitors, they hate the troops, they DISRESPECT OUR BRAVE BOYS. THE BEST THING FOR OUR BRAVE BOYS IS TO KILL AND BE KILLED. And it's okay if you helped bring that about because you remember. You remember. You can beat the drums of war with a clear conscience because you're wearing a poppy. You remember. The drums are huge poppies. You remember. You are dressed as a poppy. You remember. The poppy, a symbol of mass working class death and tragedy, has become a symbol of the very thing that led to that tragedy. Jingoistic nationalism. Jingoistic nationalism. 
clapping for the NHS during this crisis is quickly transforming into something similar. The same knobheads who would snitch to your manager for not wearing a poppy at your KFC night shift. 8pm every Thursday, they get to come out of their house and exchange looks with their fellow potbangers as they eye the empty porch of number 44. Looks like someone's not showing our NHS, our heroes, our brave boys the respect they deserve. The same way poppies have expanded to the point that a Range Rover evoke with poppies for wheels is unsurprising. There is now a clapping arms race. Clapping for our NHS makes way for banging a wok for our NHS, setting off fireworks for our NHS, launching a mortar into the next cul-de-sac for our NHS. Our NHS heroes will not be satisfied until every dog within a mile is whimpering in fear for our NHS. Let's force a century-year-old man to do laps of his garden to fund an NHS, we've intentionally and systematically defunded, privatised and crippled for our NHS. Just like the soldiers who die in Britain's imperialist wars, NHS workers who have died because of government negligence are being painted as martyrs, victims of some natural force. We must honour them, of course, by ignoring the fact that their death could have been prevented. To question the conditions that brought about their death is somehow disrespectful to their memory. Clapping for carers and poppies and referring to our, our, our NHS are all tentacles of the same monster, British exceptionalism. British exceptionalism. A delusional nationalism that meant our government could openly excuse their inaction in the early days of this crisis as a policy of herd immunity and then have their subservient journalist class scold anyone who questioned this rather than hold them to account. And people have been quick to point out that instead of clapping or medals or badges, it might be more useful to have an adequately funded and prepared NHS. And that there's an irony to many of the panbangers voting in the party who have done the opposite. It's pretty easy to see that supporting the NHS and being a Tory are two different opposing things, right? Well... That's not how they see it. Our NHS has been totally integrated into right-wing nationalism. The same press that's been sneering at people for sunbathing in parks depicted a gathering of people on Westminster Bridge last Thursday to clap for the NHS as heartwarming. The same cops that have been hassling people in their own gardens actually joined the non-socially distanced crowd on that bridge to show their support for the NHS. You might think, oh, maybe this is good. Maybe this is a step in the right direction. If the NHS is associated with right-wing nationalism, maybe that'll stop them trashing it. Mm, I'm not so sure. I reckon maybe the clapping and the medals and the badges are not a step towards getting proper PPE or properly funding or stopping privatisation or empowering care workers in the communities they serve. I think they might actually be a step away from these real things. They depoliticise the NHS. They make the NHS apolitical, take the issue out of politics. And this is why Tories and Tory voters can clap away and see no contradiction. This is exactly why what started as a voluntary, well-intentioned trend has been picked up enthusiastically by Johnson's reactionary, opportunist government. I completely understand that none of us are feeling very powerful right now. Maybe we're clapping or donating to Captain Moore's fund because that gives us some way to express our support when few other options exist. But raising money for NHS charities isn't heartwarming. It's bleak. It's a sign that things are fucked and the government using popular support for carers as propaganda cover for their own failings, 
even worse to further their nationalist agenda is um, bad. It's quite bad. It's very bad. We will defeat this coronavirus and defeat it together. We will win because our NHS is the beating heart of this country. It is the best of this country. It is unconquerable. No, uh, perhaps you could sort of take it on the chin, take it all in one in one go, and allow the disease, as it were, to to move through the the population. We will defeat and because our NHS is unconquerable. Allow the disease, as it were, to to move through the the population. In comedy and in the arts, there's a real push to make a pricing structure that's accessible to everyone. If you don't have very much money, you can pay less. If you've got a normal wage, you can pay the standard ticket price. Yeah. But I was thinking, this is more complicated. It's probably a harder sell, but it's like a more perfect system mm-hmm. where what if you were to push the idea that prices are just a percentage of your yearly wage? Pure percentage. Right? What is five pounds as a percentage of the national average wage yeah and then you just say to people that you work out what that percentage is and you say this show or event costs this percent of your wage if you're self-employed so your wage fluctuates you'll just go off your last tax return uh (laughs) you know what that wage is you let electronic machines and cashiers and tills just calculate what the price is and it means no one would ever be able to not afford anything it, it would start off as an yeah. accessibility thing. We're, we're doing this so to make sure people can access the arts or can access, you know, bread. Yeah, but then, yeah, but then it has to just become milk, eggs, everything. It yeah. applies to everything. Yeah, right. And it's instead of universal basic income, universal percentage yeah. prices. Yeah, because with universal income, like there is the criticism, which is that capital could respond to it yeah. and jack the prices up. There's nothing stopping capital going, you all have more money, so now bread costs this much more. Yeah. Well, what if... Bread just costs like 0.0 something of your daily income and then everyone can get it. Oh, but like what about self-employed people who are not only receiving money from people but having to charge people? Mm. They'd have to charge people less and they'd have to charge like rich people more. But what if they wanted to work more for poorer clients Mm -hmm. out of a kind of social good? Wouldn't they get less? Well, ultimately, no, because after a while, there is no incentive to charge a higher price for anything. (laughs) (laughs) You could have a pound and still buy a car. You're using most of your pounds. Because it would just make the car 60 pence or something. The car would cost most of your pound, so be careful. (laughs) Don't buy two cars. Don't buy two cars. It doesn't mean you can buy everything, but you're never so poor you can't afford. Oh, no, it does mean you can buy everything. Because once you yeah. spent the money on the car and you own what forty p yeah, twenty p yeah, 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 exactly because it, it keeps it it keeps going and I going. The, well, I think the problem is is you can't pay less than a pence. So there is a, there's still a form of absolute poverty. <laughs> the penny boys. Yeah, once you hit penny, you were like you're hitting like the singularity. Would you still allow the stock exchange? <sighs> that might be where it gets complicated. And then could, so could could people? What would the stock exchange do, and what would be the point of it anymore? <laughs> Exactly. You've created a proposition that would destroy capitalism by being introduced and at the same time under socialism would maybe not be the best idea. (laughs) Would be a a step back. (laughs) 
every economic system would oppose it. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, I want it. Yeah. Tell you what, it sorts out inflation. I think there obviously are problems of people going, I don't know my wage. I don't want to disclose my mm. wage. Like, there are obstacles to it. But I do feel like it is the perfect system for all the extra administrative <laughs> I do feel like elements. it's the perfect system. <laughs> yeah. Well, if, if you overlook some of the obstacles. I like how one of the most convincing aspects of uh, UBI, despite all its flaws, is it would completely decimate all the bureaucracy of the welfare system and people wouldn't have to waste their labour by uh, yeah. kind of do, doing any of that and you'd get rid of loads of charities and it'd free people up to do more more necessary work uh, mm-hmm. or more fulfilling work whereas your system would require such a sophisticated bureaucratic apparatus <laughs> or an AI no, an AI that's no, like a panopticon AI, we, you don't need bloody howl blinking at you through the wall you just need a new function on the till where you put in someone's yes I think that new function pay. on the till yeah this putting in someone's <laughs> yearly pay I feel like that's going to get complicated no it's not yeah you're not having to run the calculations it's like in mcdonald's they don't no one counts anymore you hit the button that says burger (laughs) so it's going to be the equivalent of that (laughs) they only have one burger button in mcdonald's they just smash it yeah it says burger you could like just tell the machine through an encrypted whatsapp communication what your wage is (laughs) it spits out and then it brings up the contactless card symbol and no other human being needs to know what your yearly wage is if because all all that yearly wage would be in this system if it was universalized it's just sort of a high score system that's done for like (laughs) just done for bragging rights it doesn't affect your ability to have like a quality of life what would happen to pay negotiations i think everyone would put a lot less effort yeah yeah on both yeah yeah, exactly (laughs) we just need a number i don't care what it is people we just trying to use it like so it's leet speak or something like that trying to get a cool get a cool number trying to make boobies you pay (laughs) that all pay negotiations will be like upside down calculator rude words On the percentage system, could I buy a nuke? I mean, if a nuke was available on the market... A Batmobile. That's like an inherent ill, but it's not an inherent ill of the currency. Yeah, you'd be able to buy it, but it's not my fault that someone yeah, the is market, selling Yeah, the market makes no judgments. This is what I'm saying. I'm not saying yeah. nukes are good. I think nukes are bad. But if I wanted yeah, one... So you'd be able to... If, if a nuke was just available for a person to buy, like, then, yeah, you would be able to buy yeah, a nuke. Yeah, but nuke could be high, but nuke could be like... 4,000%. No, it'd be, it has to be a higher percent than your annual wage. Well, then no one could buy it. They'd, if it was 4,000% of your annual, annual wage and you can only save up that which is part of your income, you'd have to live for over 4,000 years while surviving on nothing to buy a nuke. Boom. Your system just abolished nukes. <laughs> Without illegalizing the purchase of them. <laughs> so the market can solve everything. We've just been using the wrong market. We need the, yeah. the more percentage paradigm, now, MPP. Is there a degree to which there is even a germ of a good idea in here? Because I'm, I've been fully sold on it for the 48 hours that I've been in my brain. Is there tax still? Yeah. Tax has to change the least. Hold on. Tax, tax yeah, actually has, doesn't have to shift at all. <laughs> <laughs> but where does where do the tax thresholds hit? I don't think you need to change any aspect of the tax system. If you earn more money, then you can pay because you, you, you've got the bragging rights, so you've got to pay more tax. Ah, ah, no, no. You would have to also make the tax system, rather than based on an arbitrary amount, like, say, 80 grand or whatever, instead mm-hmm. you explicitly say top 5% pay more. Yeah, I think the whole thing is to abolish any flat numbers in any kind of transaction or tax But then flat. you would try to get paid... You would try to get paid less. You don't want to be in the top 5%. You don't want to be in the top 5% because your percentage... Is it... When you go to the shop, is that a percentage of your income after tax or a percentage of your income before tax? 
What other Because if it's a percentage of your system before tax and you've ended up paying more tax, then despite having a larger number, everything is actually more expensive for you. <laughs> what if you're richer? Well, you're not richer because of the percentage system. Great. We incentivize people to stay away from the 80 grand. In addition to removing the incentive, the profit incentive, we've created a profit disincentive. Well, a, you get sort of a profit disincentive, but also like a giant tax evasion. You know, the richest people are now going to make sure that they're paid £79,000. So the percentages work out in their favour and they'll be able to maybe buy a little nuke. Okay, well, it's a criticism of, of the system. I appreciate that. I'm but just like, trying to make it better, be no, there, I believe. There'll be no more billionaires. What you're saying here is we're going to have this oligarchy of 79 grand. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> oligarchs, it wouldn't matter. Which it, is it better matter. Than, Someone on a, a tenner will be the same as a, yeah. you know, so under that. If you, you want to have 79 grand rather than a tenner, then like be my guest. It doesn't affect anything. Yeah. I think there's no more zero-sum game. So would you maybe start a think tank and start campaigning towards this end and abandon all other well, political endeavours? Like, do you think this is this is the one? What I'm more realistically going to do is just start some very small cottage industry, yeah. make like sort of transfers or badges or lemonade yeah. using this system and then just try to encourage people to socially shame people who don't adopt it as their own. I think I'm going to go through Etsy first. And once Etsy's maybe rolled that out across the board, then we start putting pressure on like third party non governmental advisory bodies. <laughs> Why don't you just start your own uh, currency, your own crypto? And then, it, but the, the crypto works based on this. So you're paid in this crypto and you can pay in this crypto, but the crypto is called like percentoid. <laughs> percentoid. Um, I feel like once you've made your own currency, you're sort of you're not very far away from just, you know, taking a gun on an oil rig and saying you're the prince of the sea. Yeah, it, yeah, like, yeah, and? <laughs> well, I just, I'm striving, I'm striving for legitimacy to take over the existing currency, whereas you're trying to get me to take a rowing boat out to an abandoned oil whoa, extraction whoa, whoa, whoa. facility. You're saying that the prince of the sea would not be legitimate in your eyes. Um, they have the... I mean, do you consider... They have the divine right. Well, weren't they? Weren't they given like if we're talking about Sealand, the actual yeah, 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 yeah. living and true nation of Sealand? Weren't they accidentally referred to by their name by Prince Charles or someone like that, which then they took as a formal acknowledgement from the British state that they exist, <laughs> and it was a huge faux pas because it accidentally whoops it accidentally acknowledged Sealand as a living place. Yeah. Just for the listeners, there was a guy who took a gun on an oil rig. And set it up as his own country. And then I think they tried to send some aspect of like the army or the navy or someone to try and stop them. But it's very easy to fend off like a single helicopter if you have a pistol. It's just a really defensible, it's a really defensible location. I might be making this up, and but I'm sure like Pirate Bay or one of the torrent websites based themselves in Sealand for a period. That would have been like an official declaration. I don't think there was actually anything in I don't think I don't think Sealand has the necessary Sealand servers. <laughs> I just it's I don't think they're like kitted out. Listen, mate, I'm saying if if they've already got servers, that's where you could be crunching your percentoids, the coins. <laughs> you really want me to go crypto with this thing? Listen, we we gotta get through we gotta get past under the governments, right? We gotta sneak under the radar. That's how you do it. I mean I wanted to run it out as just a, a system of ticketing for the arts, but now you're turning into something that you can only get if you download Tor browser. Yeah, disrupt, baby. <laughs> I don't think Tor has disrupted any economy in any place in the world. So are you maybe afraid of rolling it out 
on a micro level in case it becomes popular and destroys the global economy? No, I'm afraid of rolling out on a micro level because people will come up to the front of house and go, what? <laughs> what do you want me to do? <laughs> and then it just means getting people into the venue at a show will take two hours. That's, that's probably my biggest yeah, genuine yeah. fear. Faff. Faff. <laughs> <laughs> Mandatory Redistribution Party was created and produced by Sean Morley and Jack Evans. Our title theme was created by Ella Jean. Join Acorn. Stay safe. Don't melt. <laughs>